You know what we're going to do now, uh, because I think in a way uh, it, 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 it was kind of marked, but uh, it could have been marked a bit more. We're going to take a little bit of time now to remember the psychiatrist Ivor Brown, who died last week, because really he was a kind of a towering figure in, uh, in modern Ireland. So I'm joined by two friends of his. Filmmaker Alan Gilsonen and writer Colin Tobin. And Colin Tobin, uh, both a friend and a patient of Ivor Brown. You're both very welcome. Hello, Brian. Thank you. Um, Alan, will you give us the basic um, biog first of who Ivor Brown was? Yeah, well, as you say, I think Ivor was a remarkable man. I mean, he, he was born in Sandy Cove in, in 1929. Uh, wanted to be a, a trumpeter. Uh, loved music, loved jazz music. Uh, listened to that as, as a teenager when he had TB and spent a long time on his own in isolation. But really the TB uh, ruined his lungs, so trumpeting was out of the question. So he ended up doing medicine in the College of Surgeons and then becoming a psychiatrist. And uh, in the early 60s, he would have travelled and worked in London and America. And I think there he was influenced by a new wave of psychiatrists who were looking at psychiatry and mental health in a whole different way. And then he returned to Ireland and kind of worked within the system. He was, you know, he was the chief psychiatrist with the then Eastern Health Board uh, and other kind of public roles. He was very much a public figure, but he was also a radical figure. Uh, so he managed to, to straddle both working within a system which he felt was and probably still is, uh, you know, profoundly regressive in terms of caring for people with mental health. But he also, you know, really was a pioneer in saying a lot of things about trauma, about darkness, about mental health, about some of the things that Claire was talking about so beautifully there. Um, OK. And uh, and I think he transformed the way we see mental health. OK. And Colm, um, why was he such an important figure on the Irish scene, do you think? I think that he had a different way of viewing things, that, that he was, I mean, it wasn't just that he had a sort of, as Alan is saying, a sort of holistic view that, 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 that he had studied the whole, the whole sort of new way people viewed trauma, but, but that he really cared about patients, that, that he was someone who wasn't just, you know, theoretical, or, or that, that he actually worked very closely, put time in with people. And that it wasn't just the simple business of writing a prescription and saying, just go and take those pills and you might be okay was to say, like, just to go to someone to say, you know, really to get them to talk, to get them to explain, and then to say to the patient, you know, the only person who can make you better is you. I'm just the doctor. I'm just the one who can guide you. But you're the one who will have to do the work. And obviously this, this was a big deal because it, me- it meant that if someone was drinking, for example, and went to see him, he'd say, well, I can only see you when you stop drinking. I mean, you, you have to do something first. But I, but I can't actually deal with you if you're constantly turning up with a hangover or if you're, or, or if you're drunk. So, so those, th- these might seem like very small things, yeah. but actually they made a very big difference if, if he was treating you, where he would say to you always, the work is yours. You're the only one who can do it. And um, I, th- I think that g- gave people a sort of sense of power, and, but also he realized that sometimes the journey would be very long with people, that, that he would see people over, over decades sometimes. How long was your treatment with him? I was, he, he identified me. I mean, in other words, I was working with his wife, June Levine. I, mean, I was editor of McGill and June was writing a very long piece. And I would often go out in the evening to their house just to see how, what June was doing and to read what she was doing and talk to her. And this husband of hers kept looking at me. And uh, he had no small talk either. You know, it wasn't as though he could <laughs> gossip about things. He, he had no interest in that. He just kept saying, 
when, when did your father die? <laughs> and I said, Ivor, stop it. I'm trying to talk to you. Give us all a break. And eventually, you know, he would say, what sort of music do you like? And it was always, I was searching, so he was, he was very tall and very handsome, and he, he would just look at you in a very kind way, and eventually said to me, you know, I think that you have a problem. You know, I really do, and um, I'd really like to help you. And I said, I'm really busy, like I'm trying to edit a magazine. And, uh, but eventually I did start, you know, being treated by him, and uh, that, that, that was... Um, Yes, it went on over over decades, and uh, I, I mean, I always felt, even when I was just meeting him, that in some way he was watching me and making sure I was okay. Yeah, and and the, the approach to treatment was, was unique, really, wasn't it? I mean, you would listen to music, I believe, was part of it. And um, I, I mean, part of what he did was there was a disused church in the grounds of Grange Gorman, and um, people would go in there on a Friday knowing you were leaving on a Sunday, you, you would sleep there. And um, it could be any number of people, some of whom you, you, you would never really see. He, he would begin by a system where everybody would lie on a, on a, on a mattress with a minder. Right. And um, he would start then working with lights, working with sound, and working with music. And ask, asking you to breathe in a very special way, breathe as though your, uh, your breath was liquid, breathe as though you're running and slowly uh, but at a certain moment every single person who was on the mattress in that group would with whatever it was that was I suppose damaging them or, or causing them to feel very very bad that people would begin to have the experience that was that had actually caused this so you could have Bedlam, you know, but he would always be in control. He, okay. had, he, had, he, had, he had nurses and doctors making sure that everybody was under control. He would come and see you at one stage. I said, I could get me out of this. You know, I, I was in a sort of trance. And he said, no, 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 you need, you need more time. You need more time. You need more time. And I had reverted. I mean, anyone, I mean, obviously it was all very private. You didn't know what anyone else was going through. But um, I reverted straight to the... Um, morning that I heard the news that my father had died when I was 12. And, I, and it wasn't just that I remembered it. I actually was in the room. I was, I was back there. I was having the experience. His theory was that a lot of people who go through trauma, the problem they have is they don't experience it at the time. They block it. They do everything not to feel because the feelings are so severe. People, for example, who've been raped or people who've, who've suffered other forms of trauma, that, that the, the experience is so, so hard. It isn't, it, isn't, it isn't that you spend your life recovering from the experience. You, you block the experience. And his job is to see if he could free that up in you. But you have to do that yourself. Okay. Did it work? You see, he would always say, no, no, don't, don't look for an instant. Don't, like, it's not as though you have a headache and you take a pill okay. and you don't have a headache. This is a long process, which is that identifying what it is that is causing you, for example, to feel depressed or it's causing other very difficult feelings, that you identify that and you work over, in a way, over a lifetime. But his job is to, is to just, um, I mean, some of the stuff was very practical, you know, about just ways to live, and especially in relation to drink, but, but also in relation to how to deal with your family. I mean, in other words, a lot of the time he saw that family relationships were just simply toxic and that your job was to see if you could survive that 
A, by just, for example, not going home for Christmas was one of his big things. Like, <laughs> like a lot of patients would be fine. No, this is yeah. serious, though, because yeah. someone yeah. would say to him, you know, I've, I had a very good summer. I felt fine. But as it came up to Christmas, I realized, of course, I'd have to go home and all the old problems would arise. Everyone would be going drinking or all the old difficulties. You're being back in your own house. And I would look at you, very clear-eyed, very gentle voice and say, have you thought of not going home for Christmas? Mm. And that in Ireland was a very big, very, very yeah. big you know, decision, a very big gesture. And it gave people a sort of, even if you did go home for Christmas, you felt, I, I have the right not to do this if, if, if next year it isn't working. But, but, but other yeah. times... I mean, did you, I'm, I'm did you try ketamine with them as well? I did. Um, that I was in such a bad state at one point, this is in Grange Gorman, that I was in such a bad, you know, that that he said, would you try this? Obviously, it was done under medical supervision. It was, it was, it was an injection. It was done by a nurse. But um, what he wanted to do was just to get me out of just the, just the terrible despondency and see if he could lift me so that after that, I could um, then work in other ways, you know, just, just to see if I could just get better. But um, the academy was absolutely marvelous. I have to say that I saw the most beautiful things. And I, and I got okay. a sense that somewhere in me was a sort of um, beauty, um, a sort of joy, a sort of attitude, different attitude towards life. So it was, a, it was an immensely sort of liberating thing that happened. Okay, and I will say on behalf of the uh, authorities that we're not recommending that anyone take ketamine and this was obviously done with training. No, no, I wouldn't. This was under pure, yeah. under pure medical supervision. It, it had nothing to do with recreational drugs. Nothing. Alan, he was a, a charismatic kind of figure beyond all that. There was something of the guru about him, wasn't there? And he was into kind of Eastern mysticism and that, wasn't he? Yeah, very much. I mean, people often talk him as a, uh, about him as a kind of guru which, of course, he would absolutely hate. Uh, but he was, as Colm says, an extraordinarily tall, handsome, elegant man who kind of exuded, you know, a sort of charisma, love. You know, a very warm figure would hug everyone. But, you know, to even mention the word guru uh, in the context of Ivor takes away from what Colm was hinting at, which is he was also very practical. You know, mm. he was a practical man. He had very visionary ideas for psychiatry, many of which now we take as given. But he also, he was very careful. He was practical. He, he, there was a, a skit by the famous American comedian Bob Newart that he always used to show people. Uh, he loved this skit. He, he showed it to me many times. And basically, Bob Newart is playing a psychiatrist and a woman comes in with his problems. And he, he just says, well, I want you to remember two words. Stop it. And he loved that. And that would seem counter to yeah. Ivor. But it was, I think what he loved under the surface of that, apart from the humour, was that he was empowering you, I, people to, to own their own mental health. That he wasn't somebody, either as a psychiatrist or a therapist, who could cure you or fix you. But he enabled you in both a safe way, but also a, an open, visionary, loving way to liberate yourself. Okay. And he obviously saw people more that lens of people who were broken rather than, than mad. And he, he was quite against institutionalisation and not a huge fan of drug therapy either. Yeah, I mean, despite the chat of Ketman, he, he was very against the over-medication of uh, psychiatric illness. Uh, and that's often, 
you know, he often was careful to say to me that there are cases, particularly in psychosis, where medication is appropriate and needed. So he he had that side to him, but he believed that the system uh, was kind of dampening the spirit of of people suffering from trauma. Um, And much of that, you know, now we think is, is kind of standard. You know, we talk all the time now ad infinitum about mindfulness. But I remember the first time many, many years before I met Ivor, being beside him in a traffic jam and the rest of us normally mad people were kind of on the verge of road rage. And I looked across and Ivor was playing the flute in his car <laughs> in the traffic jam. And that would, yeah. to him, be a kind of yeah. mindfulness, yeah. you know, yeah. but also very practical. In his uh, flow. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know the way we and like it's it's funny the trauma thing isn't it? You'd swear mm-hmm. now that Gabor Mate and Van der Kock invented the trauma thing, but he, he, yeah. you look then and you realise he's this was his thing for years. But yeah. so the whole way we talk about mental illness in early now, and we are a little bit more enlightened and everything. Mm-hmm. Was he kind of the the founding father of this modern way of looking at things? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, and and the wonderful Gabor Mate and, and Bessel. Van der Kolk, I mean, when I made the film with Ivor, we talked to them and they would absolutely, I mean, they're, as you know, huge figures yeah. internationally, but they would say Ivor was one of the trailblazers in that regard. Wow, wow. Uh, you, you made that film, Meetings with Ivor, which I, I watched it again last night. Like, it is an extraordinary piece of work. Just tell me a bit about how you became friends with him and how that came about. Well, like, I think I became friends with him through the great playwright Tom Murphy, who was another... Uh, member of the the church fraternity that Colin was talking about. And indeed, Tom Murphy wrote his his fabulous play, The Gili Concert, about his encounters, his therapeutic encounters with Ivor. But they were great friends, too. So I met him through that and uh, and also through another mutual friend, Tomás Hardiman. And Tomás uh, was at myself and, and Ivor for many years to make a film together. And Ivor, Ivor, had no interest because of he, he hadn't the ego and I didn't want to intrude. But gradually, kind of very informally, the film kind of emerged out of a number of conversations around his kitchen table. So it was. Uh, yeah. And the, and these remarkable encounters with people, Tommy Tiernan, Mary Coughlin and and uh, himself and Tom Murphy just sitting there listening to music. But what a moving piece of, of, of film. Uh, Colm, had you seen him recently? How, how was he in recent times? <laughs> um, I saw him just before Christmas and he was 94. And, you know, he, he recognized me, and, but, it, but it wasn't as though he could talk about what was going on then. So we sat there, and of course, what he, what he really always wanted to talk about was music. And he wanted to go, I mean, we talked about sets of pipes, Ilan pipes. His son Ronan was there, and we talked about what ones Leo Rousham had owned in the 50s, who made them. He was going through it all like a mathematician talking about the different shame of Ennis' sets of pipes and who made those pipes, who repaired pipes, who had the oldest set of pipes in the whole of Ireland. He loved traditional Irish music as well as jazz, as well as Beethoven chamber music. But what he was doing that day at the age of 94 was just simply the memory for that was absolutely perfect. And it was a a wonderful afternoon. It was about a few days before Christmas. He was sitting in his chair, he was beautifully dressed, he was being very carefully looked after, and um, I knew, you know, I knew that he didn't have very long and yeah. he probably knew that, too. And he was just like serene isn't the word, but also okay. engaged by the things that have preoccupied him all his life, such as such as music. And Colin, briefly, how will he be remembered and how will you remember Ivor Brown? He'll be remembered by all his patients because there are people all over Ireland 
who know what I'm talking about, that, that the amount of care, the amount of intelligence, just, just, just the amount of conscious work he put in to making people feel better in their lives. And also, of course, he was a teacher. He was a professor at UCD. The number of students who, who really were influenced by him. But there will be people listening to on the, on the psychiatry side who will say, no, no, he was mad. People, people need more pills. So, you know, it, it, isn't, it isn't as though psychiatry was all influenced by him. There are people who take, yeah. take a very different view, which, you know. But, you know, he'd be okay. remembered by his patients I mean, really, there were people listening to this thinking he was the one who actually got me through. It sounds like with enormous uh, humanity and, and love, Alan. Yeah, yeah, profound. Yeah. I mean, he okay. saved lives, but he also was a great figure of love and kindness and fun, you know. OK, listen, Alan Gilson and, and Colin Tobin, thank you both so much. I'm really, really glad that, that we did that today. We'll take a break. Text 51551. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1.